Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. For episode three of season two, we are going to continue our conversation about Sumorum Pontificum. But first, we have some business to get to. We have some t-shirts to give out. T-shirt winners. T-shirt winners. And uh, the first one that we're going to announce is our liturgy joke contest that uh, Chris thought of. Get ready so, to laugh. Yeah, get ready. Get, this is actually better than Chris's joke, I think. Most things are better than Chris's yeah, joke. Yeah, that's true. Um, so this one comes from Rex Rund. Rex Rund, I know him from Carmel, Indiana. Uh, I don't know where he's from. Hey, Rex, it's Dennis. <laughs> well, that's... Well, I will, truth be told, Dennis was not in charge of this part of the contest. I had so, nothing to do with it, but yeah, hi, so Rex. There's no uh, preferential treatment to Rex oh, and people right. that we know. Uh, okay, so... But also, Rex did say he stole this from somebody else, but he still gets a t-shirt. He says... A liturgist is an affliction sent by God so that those who have not yet suffered for the faith might not be denied the opportunity to do so. And I literally laughed out loud when I heard that. Where's the laugh track when we need it? uh, I I guess I could put one in. Ready? Here's the laughter. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, So we had a hard time finding a winner for the Buffalo 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 contest. So we actually picked two winners. Dennis, do you want to go with the first winner? Yes. Winner number one, or winner number two, a fellow named James Scott, whose subject line was, I want my free t-shirt. So very confident in his entry. And he said, chance, 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 chance. Well, can you please dissect that for me? Yes. There's a guy named Chance. His first name is Chance, and his last name is Chan, like Charlie Chan. And he's a singer, so he chants, mm-hmm. s- chants, songs that he's written. Ch- so they're Chance Chan, the guy sings his own chance chance mm-hmm. chance the chance that he composed but he composed them kind of by chance yeah. c-h-a-n-c-e okay, by luck, so they're yeah. chance chance it just came up by chance so chance 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 <laughs> it sounds ridiculous but it is beautiful uh so our other submission that we are going to give a t-shirt to is eleanor holly and Eleanor is kind of an overachiever of sorts. She sent three in, actually. Three. But the one that really caught our attention was uh, missiles, missile, missiles, missile, missile, missiles. So Miss L, uh, she said Miss Lowry, who sometimes goes by Miss L, uh, she has a missile, missile, so uh, a launched device that launches missiles, like a Roman missile. Roman missile. And that launches at other missile missiles, but it misses all of them. They, they all miss each other. So, to surmise, missiles, missile missiles, missile missile missiles. That is a good one. And, and it's liturgical too. And it's liturgical. It is so good to hear that. It just flows really well. But I don't so, think we can approve of shoving, throwing Roman missiles around. But no. We get no, it. We, we get do it. not approve. So Rex, James, and Eleanor all get t-shirts from the Liturgical Institute. Congratulations. Hopefully we can do more stuff like this in the future. And finally, we want to give a word to our sponsor this week, which is Conrad Schmidt. Dennis, Conrad Schmidt. Conrad Schmidt Studios up outside of Milwaukee in New Berlin, Wisconsin. They are one of the leaders in church restoration in decorative painting and stained glass windows not only repairing old stained glass windows but also making new ones we've been up to their studio a number of times to see their artisans working and um, i've actually had personal uh, contact with them working with heidi emery who's the president and um, 
I mean, beautiful windows made for our own chapel here on campus. Yeah, absolutely. The the JP2 Chapel, if you ever get here on campus, you must check it out. Uh, it's such an amazing, uh, amazing feat to see all these uh, young saints, recent saints. So they have uh, Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati. And I remember I asked you, Dennis, I said, well, when, when he becomes a saint, what happens? What do they do? Well, we made sure that the little piece of glass that says blessed was just one little piece, and so it can come out and we can put the word saint in there. So, totally interchangeable. Let me tell you how good Conrad Schmidt was to work with. So one of the windows in there is uh, Fulton Sheen, and he's wearing his famous sort of purple cape that bishops wear, but they, when they made the little uh, rendering for us, it was dark red, like a cardinal, and we approved it. It was our fault. So he had a cardinal's cape on, and then once the window came and was installed, we saw, uh-oh, he's wearing cardinal's clothes instead of bishop's clothes, oh, and we told no. them. And we were prepared to pay money and have Is that a cardinal sin? Kind of, yeah. Okay. Um, but they came, took the window out, replaced all the glass in the right color, and brought it back without charging us an extra dime, even though it was our fault. That's the kind of generosity and commitment to wow. the customers that Conrad Schmidt Studios provides. So again, Conrad Schmidt, really great to work with. Their website again, Dennis? ConradSchmidt.com, C-O-N-R-A-D-S-C-H-M-I-T-T. Excellent. So without further ado, episode three of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. I promise not to mess up anymore. I'm serious. Okay, we. <laughs> I didn't press record that time. Okay. Now you know why we always say, "Are we recording?" My goodness, I'm the did worst they ask person. You that? Yeah, and and side note, you guys don't know this, but we've already done <laughs> these podcasts, and I, uh, I messed it up totally. Like I'm the worst person ever. Uh, liturgy lamo. Oh my gosh. All right, so we'll start this podcast like we did. Do you guys want to do this podcast like NPR people? No. No? Okay, should we make some jokes about N- uh, soft from, voices? Uh, liturgy News Desk in Madison, Wisconsin. Today we talk about some more pontificum. Would you like some more pontificum? Oh, because we got it. You can never have enough pontificum. Okay. So, so uh, picking up where we left off last week. Oh, by the way, I do want to mention we're recording in Madison, Wisconsin. Yes. Uh, Chris, you live like way in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin, and it was too far. Dennis and I didn't want to drive that far, so we met in the middle. Early. Got up early. Yeah, Dennis doesn't like getting up early, and so I have to deal with him for like the first two, two hours, hours in the car. You. Grumpy Dennis. Um, but we want to thank the, the Diocese of Madison, and we're at the, yeah, ca- we're at the cathedral, cathedral Parish at uh, St. Patrick's Church, mm-hmm. and the pastor here, the rector here, is uh, Monsignor Kevin Holmes, and also uh, their director for evangelization and catechesis, uh, Mr. Mark Laudonio, have uh, graciously let us uh, meet here in the middle and to do these recordings. So we thank them. Absolutely. So very, very important that uh, we have a place to record these, and um, that's relatively quiet, and so we're very appreciative of that. Uh, so last week, we talked about Samoran Pontificum. It's the, around the 10-year anniversary, and we talked a little bit about what it was uh, and what Benedict's intent with it and why we, why it exists, why he wrote it, and all that all type right. of stuff. Let's review. 
Yeah, review. What was it? Yeah, what is what it? What was it? And why, Dennis, we're looking at more Pontificum? Yes. A, a motu proprio, a letter that the Pope puts out on his own authority that inserts something into law of the church. And his goal was to uh, heal interior divisions within the church, as he said, and to settle some questions about when this older form of the rite could be used, by whom, what authority bishops had, when priests could say it, who could say it, that sort of thing. And his logic was that there were a number of people attracted to this older form of the right, and uh, some people were not uh, attracted to it at all. And he was trying to, I think, bridge this gap between now and then, past and present, but also to bring people attached to it into some kind of regular relationship with the church. There's a whole religious community called the Society of St. Pius X, who kind of rejected the new um, the new missal and their schismatic group. Well, at least... Some people argue they're schismatic we're not, we're groups. trying not to be controversial, well, okay? No, they... Anyway, John Paul... It's is what long, he talks about in the letter, though. Right. So no, this, he mentions it specifically. In the letter. And he thought most people were just saying, oh, how can we reconcile them back in the church? It's a significant body of people who are outside the licit relationship with the church that he wanted to bring them in. So this was, a, a to heal, as he said, to heal a wound experienced ever more painfully. And uh, But then also he realized that there are young people who weren't alive before Vatican II, who for some reason... Like you, Jesse. That nobody... <laughs> I'm, I'm a young person. <laughs> hey, nice. I wasn't alive before the council either, Chris. Neither were you. Were you? No. 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 You're no. young, Dennis Chris. Is the young, is the oldest I'm the oldest one, one in the room, yeah. But anyway, he said, strangely enough, these young people like this thing, and they're attracted to it, and what are we going to do with them? How can we bring some kind of regular uh, discussion and norms uh, for this. And so that's kind of what this document does. And I think I've, I've seen that, at least in my experiences, that there's almost this d- extreme divide where like, I know people who don't like the Novus Ordo because they haven't seen it done in a proper way, so they go to the extraordinary form. And I know people who they don't want this overly ritualistic type of you know, ceremony where they don't understand what's going on, so they, they only like the Novus Ordo and they want nothing to do with any of that. And so I think kind of what you're saying is we're, we're trying to kind of uh, meet in the middle or trying to find out what is the optimal type of liturgy and i think what the second vatican ii was really wanting was more active participation we talked about that so and now we want to get into kind of what's the commentary on it now where where are we going we talked about mutual enrichment which i'd like to dive into a little more too right carlos sarah's made news with that but that's actually a term that comes up in the accompanying letter to the document where pope benedict himself said he thinks these two forms will be mutually enriching. That's the actual word. He doesn't say exactly how that would happen. He does suggest he maybe some of, of things. The, the feast days of new saints could be inserted in their prefaces into the old, um, older form of the missal. And the, and the new missal could receive from the quality of the old missal a, a sense of uh, silence and sacredness and transcendence. But apart right. from that, he doesn't give a lot of uh, specs about what this mutual enrichment will look like. Right. But he says there's this new commission being formed at that time, new, called the Ecclesia Dei Commission. He, can you say he, Benedict or Sarah? Benedict. Benedict. Okay. Yeah, with with this letter. So okay. there, was, there was a letter. You mentioned this, I think, in the last podcast, Dennis. John Paul II in 88, 88. wrote a letter. Uh, I don't know if it's an indult or some kind of so letter. So much appropriate. Oh, it was. Okay. Um, called um, Ecclesia Dei, right? And so that that letter became the title of this commission called the Ecclesia Dei Commission, and it it existed uh, as kind of a commission beneath the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, actually. So today's head of the Ecclesia Dei Commission would be 
Do you know the new archbishop's name? I don't that know. That replaced Cardinal Mueller? No. I don't remember. Man, either. you guys are good for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so but basically, but he's be, in charge of this Ecclesia right. Day Commission. And what, what the letter said is that it, would, it will be left to the Ecclesia Day Commission to determine the details about how these two missiles can interpenetrate or reflect or perfect each other. Um, it says, uh, I don't know if it's in Samorum Pontificum or the letter or elsewhere, it says, you know, there's not to be any kind of unauthorized commingling of the two missiles. Right. You know, a pastor just says, well, I like this from this missile and oh, that like a hybrid. That missile. No mixing right. of not, rights. Not to, not to have yeah, form. Two rights make a wrong. Oh, uh, yeah. We knew that would come up soon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was waiting for the best time, and that was there, it. No, there's no okay. best time for that. You get that. Thank you. For that Thank attempt you. at a joke. All right. So, but, but, but what I found interesting in this, I mean, the letter's 10 years old, and they'll say that this, uh, and he says that the Ecclesia Day Commission will kind of uh, facilitate and oversee whatever mutual enriching takes place. But what's happened practically over the last 10 years? Can you name any of those things? Well, there's certainly that's right. A, you can't. <laughs> certainly a lot more oh, extraordinary good. form masses being was, celebrated. I thought that was one of those things where I didn't know the answer. And, no, okay. Yeah, there really hasn't been. I don't know what the Ecclesia Day Commission has done. What are they even doing over yeah, what there? Are they do? <laughs> I don't know uh, what <laughs> legislatively they have, uh, you know, put forth. You know, with, would be under the Holy Father. Of there course, there was that thing about celebrating Our Lady of Fatima on the feast day. Yeah, well, right? that's that a good up. example, right? So, uh, what? That's April thirteenth is Our Lady of Fatima. Is uh, that May thirteenth. May 13th. Okay. So in the, the calendar, so the calendar is a part of the missile, right? So the liturgical calendar belongs to a, a particular missile. So the 1962 missile has its own proper calendar and the Novus Ordo missile has oh, its oh, own calendar. Oh, so there's calendar. different feast days depending on yes. which right. right. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. Moved, yeah, they, they moved some, they eliminated some, they added really? some after yeah, Vatican so, but, they, but they're attached to the missile. And so in uh, on May 13th, uh, I think in the old calendar it was St. Charles Borromeo, maybe, or something like that. And so he was the saint who had to be celebrated that day. But uh, given the centenary of the Fatima apparitions... Which uh, were on May 13th. Which were on May 13th. Um, permission was given through the Ecclesia Day Commission, then under Cardinal Mueller, that uh, those who were celebrating the extraordinary form could celebrate Our Lady of Fatima. Hmm. But apart from that, there really hasn't been any, uh, that I'm aware of, any practical suggestions put forward but we were told now, that that's coming well that's just and you know i don't know do you, is it because is it intentional that they said we're just going to hold off on this we're going to let the two missiles kind of coexist and see what might uh, not by any illicit inclusion or excision of any part but just see how they live together and how they might that's not a bad idea there. well I, I wonder if that wasn't intentional and sure enough i mean i don't know, I know what you all's experiences but you know more there are as you said dennis more and more celebrations of the extraordinary form uh and many priests who now celebrate both forms i mean what in illicit way may have how are they affecting each other well you do see in even in the current Use of the current ordinary form missile, um, number of people moving toward an ad orientum position. It may be because Cardinal Ratzinger was recommending it for years, maybe because Cardinal Sarah talked about it. But I think if you see it as the extraordinary form becomes the new like mark for what tradition is, then using the current missile seems quite modern in a sense. And doing ad orientum is a lot less of a, a claim on people than going to the whole extraordinary form. So. I like to say the, the liturgical center was wrenched <laughs> quite far when Samar Motivicum came out. And so that Adorientum 20 years ago would have been like shooting <laughs> over the bow of, your, of the ship next to you. And now it's kind of like, well, 
yeah, mm-hmm. it's not that common, but it's not that big a deal. I think that's I wonder, happened. Too, like periods of silence. Does the Nor- Novus Ordo have more periods of silence? Not in my experience. Yeah, no, I, but I don't. I can't really. Just kind of thinking about it. I don't, other than um, you know, I think the the preparation of the altar. I think there's some silence there, depending on if there's music. But I don't think it's intentionally silent in any place, really. But Latin? Do you think there's more Latin in the in the Novus Ordo Mass now than there was ten years ago, like the Sanctus? Or yeah, maybe some of the ordinary parts of the Mass. I don't know. Latin. I wasn't alive ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that young, guys. I was joking. Now. But but there are th- there does seem to be some. Inf- I mean, what uh, would would the Novus Ordo have had any effect on extraordinary form celebrations? Uh, not too much yet. I think people who are committed to the extraordinary form really are a little nervous about uh, about any changes to it, partly because they ran to it as a safe refuge a lot of the times. And sometimes you see this discussion about mutual enrichment. It's been in a lot of the blogs lately. People are very nervous about mutual enrichment on the extraordinary form side. Yeah, I thought I, thought I read somewhere on the internet that uh, priests... Stay away uh, from that internet, Chris. Seem to have more of an awareness in the extraordinary form of the assembly that they're trying to engage and trying to help participate. That it wasn't, you know, maybe this is a caricature, maybe it's real. That you know, uh, you know, a hundred years ago the priest was just interested in doing his own thing and at the altar, and the spectators who were out there in the assembly. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. Uh, but I did hear read that uh, the priests celebrating extraordinary form now are more cognizant of the participants in the assembly. So well, that could just, be an effect too. I was going to say that. I mean. I- Again, I don't know. I'm just getting into liturgy stuff now from working at the Liturgical Institute, but it seems to me that um, the extraordinary form is getting is better now than it was pre-Vatican II, and even the Novus Ordo is starting to get better than it was. That's the whole point, and okay. I, I think that would... Uh, whether that's true or not, I think it is. In my limited experience, I think that's also true, Jesse, and I think that's the point, is they're both... The, the word that... Uh, Cardinal Seurat uses as a mutual perfecting of the missiles. Um, I was so talking to somebody about this. Does that mean that you think they're going to? Well, let's, let's okay. get to that a little bit later. Somebody was saying to me, it's, that's probably not the best way to say it, because there is no such thing as a perfect missile or celebration of the Mass. He went on to say, except for in the heavenly Jerusalem, which of course uses the 1962 Roman missile. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> but even but, before the council, people were saying I the missile. I wish somebody submitted that as a liturgy joke. <laughs> There's your joke. You get the t-shirt, Chris. Um, people said that you know, the high mass, the one where the priest spoke out loud and, and then the dialogue mass, that was considered the ideal form of celebrating even the, the older missile. It's just people didn't do it that often because it took a lot of work. And the low mass was kind of the, the least common denominator. And so it was silent and quick. Um, so this but idea it, that people participating it was not invented in 1969 or 1970. Yeah. Uh, but maybe to this point about uh, the nervousness of a potential uh, mutual enrichment. Uh, one of the things that, I mean, I, I think we have to admit that Cardinal Seurat is at least the most prominent promoter of uh, Sumorum Pontificum. He's speaking about a lot. He's he's at least offering, uh, perhaps in an uh, unofficial capacity, uh, details about how they might uh, mutually enrich each other. And what's his role? But, what's his Okay, office? so Cardinal Seurat is, is the prefect for the Congregation of Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments. So he's not in charge I of Ecclesia. I had a long title for my job. <laughs> he's not in charge of Ecclesia Dei, but surely he's he's a part of it. But one of the things that uh, I hear him saying, uh, I think often, is that um, Sumorum Pontificum and the celebration of the extraordinary form today has to be seen in light of 
the Second Vatican Council and its constitution, Sacrosanctum Concilium. So that's the context today of celebrating a, a, the extraordinary form. And so it should have an effect. You're right. I, I, I think some people, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, go to the extraordinary form to, to you know, to, to get away from bad liturgy, <laughs> to get right. something that's a little more transcendent. Then I get to go to there and pray my rosary during Mass, right? well, which is not maybe, really maybe what not. they should Maybe, oh, maybe man. not. Maybe, maybe not. It's a low blow. But I mean, it's, it's somehow um, seen as, it's not tainted by the Second Vatican Council or things like that. That's not how Cardinal Seurat sees it. Uh, that's it not should, how Benedict saw it either. No, it's not. It's not. Um, and so, you know, how, how these things are starting to... I don't know, coalesce is, uh, I think the details of that we're starting to see now, or at least more conversation right. about And the principle is there. The principle is there in, in the kernel of the, this accompanying letter to Samorum Pontificum is the one everybody reads. The, the document itself is actually kind of boring in you know, certain <laughs> laws and permissions, but the philosophy of it or the theology of it is behind, mm-hmm. is in that letter. And the, the Pope Benedict said there's no contradiction between the two editions of the Roman Missal. There's development, but no rupture. What earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred for us too and cannot be forbidden. And that's a very interesting notion that you can't just say everything up to 1962 was bad and suddenly, whoa, it was, or it was gr- good. Or this great new day. Yeah, like we've figured it out and here's the right answer. Yeah, nor but, can you say since then everything's been bad or everything's been good. Right. What he says, can you say? He says, he, well, this is what he said. It behooves all of us to preserve the riches that are developed and to give them their proper place. But... You have to also take into account the newer, appropriate, authentic developments, too. Yeah, Cardinal Sarag will say, I, I, I vehemently oppose the pitting of one missile against another. That's so entirely contrary to the spirit of the letter, which is this interior reconciliation at the heart of the church. It's contrary to the entire ontology, Dennis, of the liturgy, which is about... Uh, unity and divinization and coming to oneness with uh, God in the mystical body of Christ. And you know what Pope Benedict said was the way that you could unify people around the new missal? In fact, he didn't say, get rid of it because it's bad and use the old one. Do it right. Yes. He says, (laughs) R-I-G-H-T. Do the right right. The most sure guarantee that this missal can unite communities is when it's celebrated with great reverence and in harmony with liturgical directives. So basically, the current missal can be celebrated in a very respectful transcendent, eschatologically rich, beautiful, prayerful way. It's not the book itself. It's usually all this other stuff that kind of goes around it. So do you think that's where we're headed? I see we are. I think it seems that. to be where the heart of people tends to be going. Yeah, well what what he said he Pope Benedict said either in this accompanying letter or in Samorum Pontificum, he says, uh, dear brother bishops, in three years time I want you to send back to me your experiences of this letter. And we'll address those situations. We'll take into account whatever difficulties may have arisen. So there was there was a consultation with uh, the bishops of of the church, and they sent back presumably their their questions and concerns. And in about three and a half years after Sumorum Pontificum, there was another letter that listeners might be interested in looking at called Universae Ecclesiae. I think that's what it is. Universae Ecclesia was promulgated by the Ecclesia Dei Commission, and this is kind of its. I mean, Sumorum Pontificum. Pontificum really is very broad in general in its scope. This other letter, University Ecclesia, is much more specific about uh, the details of the ritual books, the ministers, the, the, the people who use them. All right, so that happened six years ago, and now we hear more often uh, or recently Cardinal Seurat giving particular 
again, I, this is not as in an official capacity as prefect or member of Ecclesia Day, uh, but offering suggestions about what could happen now to mutual. So he's language. vocal about it, but it's not any like official legislature from Correct. the church. Okay. Correct. So what is what types of things is he saying? Do you remember any of these, Dennis? Uh, I remember them, it came out, but I see you have documents in front of you. You can be more articulate about it than I could right now. Well, you mentioned this last time about the the, the calendars, uh, using the same calendar, and uh, at the same time, perhaps the same readings uh, each day. Uh, so that, that that would be one thing, is, is uh, um, an enrichment and a coming together of... Um, uh, of the calendars and the readings. And about this coming together, you know, the expression that he seems to like more and more is, I hear him use the word reconciliation and mutual enrichment. There was a kind of a kerfuffle over the past couple of years about uh, this expression, reform or the reform. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, it meant uh, take the reform that followed the Second Vatican Council and reform it in light of uh, a more authentic hermeneutic and traditional understanding. So okay. like the like w- what we had right away was like a rough draft? <laughs> well, maybe something, like, at least in its uh, implementation. Uh, Properly Card- speaking, it means rework the actual liturgical books. It doesn't just mean add a few nice pieces of music to it. The reform of the reform, properly speaking, is redo the books, redo the instructions. Yeah, and I think it was, uh, I think it was Cardinal Ratzinger himself who maybe coined that term or at least popularized it. Uh, Cardinal Seurat used to use it, but that seems to be not quite uh, what he has in mind now. Rather, it's a reconciliation and mutual enrichment. Rather, take those books and celebrate them uh, don't don't change the books, but celebrate them with a more consistent understanding of the liturgical tradition. Uh, Cardinal Seurat, of course, speaks about ad orientem long before his comments on um, uh, on Samorum Pontificum, but offering mass ad orientem, um, uh, communion on the tongue. He mentioned in in, a, in an article while kneeling. I think he mentioned prayers at the foot of the altar. Again, these are um, this was an unofficial uh, uh, interview, but. These are some of the things that many people discuss this, right? How He's about probably going the, the other way. Yeah. How about, yeah. How about the how about other way? And things that change the extraordinary form. Did you talk about that? Well, again, I think it would be the readings and the calendar would be the biggest uh, right. things of impact there. So I, there, there's still confusion, at least in my mind, about uh, which, which lectionaries can be used. Uh, when the document first came out, it said any approved lectionary can be used in the celebration of the extraordinary form. Um, but I don't know if that's. Uh, if that's actually the case or not. So imagine hearing the readings, not uh, repeated, but hearing the readings in the vernacular. From the beginning, right. Yeah. So if you have new, because it's my understanding that the um, the calendar in the old rite, uh, the extraordinary form, is pretty full. So if we have new saints, do they not recognize like well, Saint John I don't Paul II? the calendar is really full. This is uh, um, this happens often. I, I think it happened at Trent. Clear is, the board. Is, starts well, in, in some ways you do because the the calendar. What it's principally meant to do is manifest the life of Jesus and the principal uh, mysteries of his own life. But you know, uh, thanks be to God, the saints come up, and so they get added to the calendar, and generally they start to take over the calendar. Now they're not in battle with Jesus or anything like this, but the day can be more focused on the saints and maybe the 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 true the, the authentic mystery of the life of Christ maybe gets downplayed. So uh, at the Second Vatican Council, there was, in a certain sense, a reform and a I don't know, purging isn't the right like Saint Christopher, for example, mm-hmm. uh, taken off the calendar. Right. And they also realized a lot of the saints' days that were universal saints were Roman 
Roman saints, often from many centuries ago when the church was small. And so, and they, they're like, let's do all of Italy then. Well, they were they were realizing not <laughs> not a lot of people had a lot of devotion to certain early Christian martyrs that were local importance, and so they just kind of scraped mm-hmm. off some of the the saints and made room for but more. That's going to be a perpetual thing that yeah, we need to do is, because we're always going to have new saints, new saints. No, well. It, whether it's the calendar or the missiles generally, I mean, this sounds pretty radical to say, but Cardinal Seurat in his own reflections on Sumorum Pontificum's 10 years says that the missiles are in constant need of, of change. Revision. Yeah, of revision. And you know, most of us hear that say, no, 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 we've had yeah, too much of this constant change over the years. Yeah, that's kind of but what I've been thinking about this whole thing is like, peep. Dennis, you, you said the liturgy is like emotional, right? So, I mean, it's it's we get very attached to this because it's very important. Yeah. So, we don't, we don't want change because it's so hard to get used to that. But when you zoom out, I mean, the missile is always changing. The right is always, we're always trying to figure out a better way, a more authentic right. way to worship. When Pope Francis added and St. Joseph, her spouse, to the Eucharistic prayer, nobody said, oh my gosh, my whole liturgical experience is turned upside down. However, if you show up with a rock band and, you know, a bunch of clashing cymbals, that's you know, it's not part of the liturgy and it seems to be disruptive. So the, the revisions are meant to be continu- in continuity with what came before. They're meant to be seamless and smooth. And so that's part of the issue of how you, uh, how you do this. Can I make one more point, Dennis? You and I have talked about this, about uh, the nature of the liturgical movement. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an important thing to keep in mind as we talk about how the rites may or may not change, how they should or should not change, how they can or cannot enrich each other. I mean, if we go back to Pius X and Trale Solicitudini. God bless you. Thank you. Um, Virgil Michael in the early days, Romana Gardini in the early days, uh, the young Joseph Ratzinger, the liturgical movement was not about changing rites at all. It was about changing people. What moves in the liturgical movement is the people into the deep, the depth, into the mystery which the Mass contains. And I think if, if when we talk about the liturgical movement or liturgical topics, and it's too exclusively on how we can change this Mass to do that, how we can change this rite to do that without remembering the, 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 that primary premise, which is changing us uh, to move into the liturgy, then I think we're, we're not reading um, Sumorum Pontificum, for example, in its proper context. You could go to Mass in English and still not pay attention and still not offer yourself on the patent and still not receive the fruits that you ought to receive. I'm sorry, what were you saying? I was yeah, thinking exactly. about my, <laughs> exactly. my problems. Uh, you, you have not received the fruits of my wisdom, <laughs> Jesse. Uh, I, I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Chris. I mean, there, there, we, there's a humility in that, you know, relinquishing yourself to saying, gosh, I mean, this is what I really like in liturgy, but God, I don't know what the perfect liturgy is. I've never seen it, and I won't see the perfect liturgy until I'm in the heavenly Jerusalem. Yeah, well, we've quipped before the most destructive liturgical principle is, I like it. Right. Or, I or we've like always, or we've always done it that do, way. Yeah, but it doesn't have anything to do with, with that, what you might right. like or not like. It's, if you went to the gym and only did the exercises you liked, you probably would. If you skip leg day, oh my gosh, do exactly. not skip leg day. Okay. And some you know, personal trainer has more wisdom and experience and wants to help you become better. You know, you the, like this exercise. Well... <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate doing it, but it's good for me, right? There's there's always an ascetic discipline in the liturgy, too. That's something, silence is hard. It seems kind of boring. I don't want to do that. Or singing this Latin chant, it's not familiar. Why are you making me do this? People get all angry. But then over time, you say, oh, I get it. I have to control my own desires and be formed by the liturgy and not try to form the liturgy on my own image all the time. So, you know, if I can sum this all up in one phrase. It's Sumorum just, Jessica. Let, Jesus be your missile guidance system, okay? Just, just, 
right. Let's answer. Oh, wait. We're waiting for the. Was it a dud? A bunch of flowers. A bunch of flowers grew instead. Oh, explosion. that yeah. was cute. It's a new garden. Cute. All right. Let's answer a liturgy question, and um, I hope it's a good one. What do you What do you hope, Chris? I hope we have hope interior reconciliation among the three of us with this question. I would like some exterior reconciliation. How about some hugs? Come here, Jesse. You're the best. You're great. Too tight. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? You know, people sometimes ask me what Jesse is short for. And I'm like, Jessadiah. Uh, <laughs> and then, I'm not, I'm not kidding. People will say, oh, oh I, didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> and I'm just like... But it bugs me because whenever I go somewhere, they're like, oh, what's your name? Or like, you get a coffee, what's your name? Or you make a reservation, what's your name? They always do J-E-S-S-I-E. And for those of you listening out here, it is Jesse with an E. Most, like nine times out of 10, that's a guy. If it's a girl, nine times out of 10, it's I-E. All right? Anyway, I only talk about this. (laughs) I'm only asking you this or telling you this because our question comes from Jesse today. So... Uh, it's a real person. His name Jesse. He's a priest, and he has a question. And his question is, how do you place a relic in an altar? Very carefully. Great. How All do right, you get Jesse. a relic to begin oh. with? That's kind of an interesting question. Yeah. Well, what, what's the legislation on that directs this, Dennis? Well, the right of dedication of a church talks about it. Also, the general instruction for the Roman Missal, chapter 5, a little bit. Uh, it doesn't really say, you know, this is how you insert a relic in a church, but basically in an altar. But it says it goes under the altar, usually is the phrase. They used to cut little holes in the mensa or the top slab and put them in that way, but that's no, no, no. They don't like cutting holes in this image of Christ on the top of the right. slab. So, okay, so people, that's one. It goes beneath. Right. They do it in different ways. Sometimes they'll have the altar just goes on top of it and you don't see them. Sometimes they'll put a little glass and the, the relics will be in there that you can actually see them. Sometimes they're in little, little, what do they call them? Caskets. In the mensa? Oh, under, no, under still the mensa, underneath. Like okay. under the, yeah, but let's like say, say between the vertical posts of the, mm-hmm. of the altar. Sometimes they put them in a little casket, they say, or a little um, kind of container that looks important and you can see them either from the front or the back or have a little bronze grill or something, but there's no hyper-specific legislation about where they should go. Yeah, and this um, from this last class I taught, I was reminded of this, that it, John has this vision in the book of Revelation, how he sees the martyrs in heaven beneath the altar of God, and they're saying, how long, O Lord? So it's, it's scriptural as well that the, the, the relics go beneath the altar. So that's right. one thing. And part of the tradition, too, was if a, if a martyr um, died in a certain place, they would build an altar in a church over that spot. Mm-hmm. And the bones would be left there. They'd dig a hole and bury the person there, and then they'd build the altar on top of that. It's called a confessio. Be- like when you go to a Roman church, there's usually steps down under the altar to a little 
room like a crypt. Chapel. Yeah, like a crypt. And that's because that's where they made their confession of faith at the moment of their death and the confessio. And then they built an altar over that. So that the bones of the saint am- are, are that's under amazing. the altar. That right. is so amazing. What's a, what's a second uh, bit of uh, legislation on relics? About the relics themselves? Yeah. Well, they have to be verifiably relics so they have to be authentic right just this is just for the ones in the altar not just in general right well in general they should be but particularly for ones for ones in an altar and the third thing about uh relics well they should look like pieces like of relics bodies, right <laughs> like actual pieces not like a little well, tiny splotch of glue also not like uh and it can't be a garment or anything well not those, for an altar it those would be, be second a, class relics. For, yeah they have to be recognizable as parts of human bodies right relics so, come in three uh classes the first one first class is actual pieces of the saint's body second Whoa. second class so that could be hair bones whatever second class is something they used or owned so a piece of their clothing a notebook a pencil something like that and a third class relic is something that was touched to a first class relic so it may not have actually belonged to the saint but you bring something you touch it to the bone of saint somebody and then that's a third class relic all right so relics and altars go beneath the mensa they're authentic and they're recognizable parts of human bodies right and martyrs are preferable they're not required yeah. but martyrs are preferable for but, the same reason yeah this is a good but you, where do you get one of these <laughs> <laughs> the relic they're actually they're relic. actually very difficult i mean ebay um, hopefully not okay uh but even if you know a, a high-ranking prelate somewhere in uh, the holy see they're difficult to come by. So very, in fact, the, the legislation then will say it's better that a church be dedicated without any relics at all rather than having relics that are not recognizable as parts of human bodies or are not uh, verifiable. So That's kind yeah, of a weird thing to like, I got, I got two John Pauls. Anybody, I need to move them, you know? Yeah. It seems kind of weird. We move them, but like, like uh, you know, sell like, them? like product. Yeah, it just yeah, seems no, no. There, I think there, there must be places that the Holy See recognizes as authentic distributors, not in a right. marketplace. I think they're often uh, uh, religious uh, even, men yeah, and women. Even kind of a weird, st- yeah. still well, kind of weird. Well, certainly you shouldn't be uh, buying the, the buying or selling them on uh, on right. eBay or things. But you like can that. find them there. There's yeah, some church uh, resellers who who sell. They don't sell relics. They sell relic queries, and then there happens to be a relic ah, inside. So. Yes. You, you pay a lot more money for a reliquary containing a full skull than a finger, you know, just yeah. because. Okay. Got to catch them all, you know, the market say. value. Um, but then they're, often they come with little certificates from some whatever Vatican office determines their authenticity, and that's uh, something to look for, too. We yeah. had, um, at the university, we had somebody dro- stop by with a bunch of relics from John Paul II, St. John Paul II, which was really cool. There's some really amazing things there. But, uh, well, Father Jesse... Just Jesse, however you go by. I hope that answers your question. And if any of you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.